in the wilderness of, for some 40 days and nights, having eaten, eaten nothing. Now, for most of us, that seems incredulous. We know scientifically you can kind of exist for some six weeks or so without food, they tell us, in certain kinds of situations. But 40 days in the wilderness is just hard to grasp. Already we know that the wilderness is a place of training. It's a place of getting in touch with ourselves, a place where, where many spiritual giants down through the ages have retreated to in order to examine themselves that they might be more like Christ even after the days of Jesus upon this earth. So there Jesus is toward the end of his testing, and testing is a good word. I know that we often think of it as the temptations of Jesus, but in our English language, temptation usually has a, a bad connotation to it. That when someone is tempting us, they're trying to get us to do something we know we shouldn't do. And I think that's the way we understand the word temptation. And this is not that. This is a testing that God allowed by Satan of his son Jesus. It was going to perform two very important things. It's important that we grasp that from the start. First of all, it is there for the preparation of Jesus for the mission that God has called him to. Testing prepares us like nothing else can. And then secondarily, it's a way that Jesus showed that he was ready for the mission that God was telling him and giving him about his future. Now, we don't particularly like temptation, and we sure don't like testing, but it's important that we distinguish what we are experiencing in life. In fact, quite frankly, I think most of life is a testing for us. For I think our mission extends far beyond what we see in front of us now and goes throughout our life and points us ever forward. And the continual experience of testing along the way prepares us for each new step, each new direction. If you will, allow me to elaborate a little. For each new level of exposure you're going to have to the Son of God and to the mission that he's called you to on this earth. We don't get from where we are to where we need to be by simply getting older. Testing drives humanity. It always has and it always will. Every civilization, perhaps, is, a, quite frankly, an example of that. That along the way, many civilizations that started out very good and very helpful to the people who were living amongst each other turned a different way as testing accumulated and they failed those tests. Most nations that spring up, spring up for the good of common people, for the good of everyone. And yet along the way, each government that we've seen so far has drifted by its wayside, lost its sense of direction, and fallen prey to the temptations of humankind and lost sense of their original mission. Think about Rome. Think about every great empire you want to think of. And you might say, well, not the United States. I don't know about that. I think the jury is still out for us. I think we've passed many tests, and I think we're failing some others. Which kind of is the way we live our lives? Is it not true? Hopefully, the tests that we encounter are different as we grow older for this reason. If we keep getting the same test over and over, you know why we're getting the same test over and over? Yes, 
Because we're failing that test. We can't get farther on until we learn from our experiences and our mistakes. Testing prepares us for what God has called us to do. And it also proves that we're ready for the test. You think Jesus was hungry? 40 days. Hey, Jesus, how's it going, man? Don't those rocks look good? They'd look better if you turned them into bread, right? Have a snack. It'll be okay. You can do it. You have the power. Use your power. If you think Jesus didn't want to turn that rock into a piece of bread, you haven't been hungry lately. But when he looked at that rock and he looked at that bread and he looked at that tempter, he had the awareness that he was being tested. And he had the process going on inside him, I would say, that allowed him to come to the conclusion to quote scripture that says, Thou shalt not live by bread alone. Thou shalt not live by the things of this earth alone. There is something higher and more important even than food or the things of this life, and that is the Lord God. Well, Satan went on from there since he quoted scripture. He says, well, you know the text. He quotes it. You know, the angels won't allow you to get hurt, so let's take, uh, come with me. Let's get on top of the temple and throw yourself down so that the angels will come and rescue you, just like Scripture said. Now, that must have been perhaps a little tempting. I don't think it's as tempting as a stone, but that's me, right? But he saw that, and he thought, you know, it would be a shortcut. I'm sure it flashed through his mind. People would be impressed if the angels reached down and saved him. But what did he say? He says, um, it is written, you must not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Having failed that, then the devil took him up to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In essence, he was showing him what God had intended for Jesus to have sooner or later, but it was later rather than sooner. And he says, you can have all this stuff, all the things you're seeking, all these people to follow you, I'll give it to you right now if you will just fall down and worship me. Means to an end. Does it, do the means matter? Evidently they did, didn't they? And Jesus looked at him and said, Leave me. Get away. I'm sure he said it a lot stronger than that, don't you think? He says, we are made to serve God. Not worship anyone or anything else. There would be no idol that would ever be allowed to come between Jesus and his worship of the Father. Now, the reality is, Everything in this life has the potential to be an idol. I remember the most shocking statement I heard in my young life when a preacher was preaching a particular sermon series and I was a young man. And I remember the, young, the preacher saying very distinctly to the congregation, it's one of those times when he stopped and said, even your children can become an idol. And I went, what? What, what? what are you talking about? Even your children can become an idol. You can worship them so much that you fail to do what is best for them. 
Is it possible that you can want to be your child's friend so much that you can't be their parent? I'm not asking you all that question. That would be unfair. That would be like asking you, do you want to turn a rock into a loaf of bread and have a snack? Or better still, into a college diploma that you can tuck in your back pocket without ever going to school. Certainly you want your parents to be your friend, because if they're your friend, they will have perfect understanding of you, right? They'll know your feelings, your understanding, that they'll do just what makes you happy, right? Maybe, but if they're your parent, they'll do what's best for you. And that means sometimes you'll be unhappy with them. You might even feel anger in your host, in your stomach. I can't even say it, can I? You might even be disappointed with them. You might even say to them, you don't really love me. Maybe. And maybe they love you more than you could ever imagine. In fact, I'll tell you right now, this is a secret. I appreciate if you wouldn't tell your parents, okay? They love you more than you can possibly understand until the moment comes in your life when you take a small baby in your hands and know that's your child. You cannot understand the love of a parent who's normal and healthy and their love for their child until you've had your own. I know that because I tried. I tried to understand that love before the time came, but I never did until my child was in my hands that God had given me. Now, idols have to be rejected. Because if we don't reject idols, we've turned away from God. And since we can make anything an idol, we have to ask ourselves, how did Jesus pass that test? How did he pass all three of those tests? And then we go, oh yeah, well he was Jesus. That's how. No, that's not it. Jesus passed these tests because he was fully human as well as fully divine. Make him being fully human means he had to go through the same things we had to go to or else he could not fully understand us as the scriptures make clear that he did and does. So therefore, the hunger for that turning that stone into bread was real. And he proved himself through this process, this means, if you will, of this testing that he was ready to take on the mission that God had in store for him. Now how he did it, I think is a key to understanding Jesus in the Scriptures. And there are many keys to understanding Jesus in the Scriptures, but one thing we know is Jesus seemed to always be thoughtful about what he was doing. He seemed to be ready intellectually with his emotions in control before he acted. That is something human beings struggle with, and I'm sure Jesus struggled with it too. But at this point and in this place, we want to talk about another way of looking at the stories of Jesus in the Scriptures from the perspective of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence really is not that hard a term to understand. Emotional intelligence most simply is just uh, the ability to control one's emotions. And we all do better at that on some moments than others, right? We all do that at sometimes at different stages in our life better than we do at other stages, but having control of our emotions is very important to living a biblical and a scriptural life, as well as living a life that's filled with joy and has meaning not just for you, but for others. 
And this writer makes this case, this writer in this book called The Emotional Intelligence of Jesus. The author is Roy Oswald. Several asked me about that last week. It's not an expensive book. It's a little bit of a slow read. It's pretty thick. They're trying to tell us how our brain works, and that's kind of hard for us. It's kind of hard to say, they'll admit they don't really fully understand the brain yet either. It's the last uh, frontier, perhaps, in the human body for... uh, scientists to try and understand and their their understanding of it is growing rapidly but it is also changing as we breathe and live today ourselves so if you think about Jesus he was a very emotionally intelligent person now his brain was fully developed and he was fully in control of it something we don't always master right sometimes our grade our worldview is not the worldview that Jesus had. Because you see, his worldview was seeing the world as the Father would see it. He and the Father were one. So often in our lives, our worldview is seen through the narrow lens of what feels best regarding our own interests, our own goals, our own aims. If it's good for us, it's a good thing. We have a tendency to be a little more self-centered than Jesus exhibited. Now, it's not surprising since, after all, he's the perfect example, right? So we kind of expect that. But, and yet the process of who he was is still something we are called to emulate, to live like Jesus, right? We, like Jesus, have a brain also. I know you're tempted to say, well, we all have a brain, but they're not all equal. And you know what? You'd be right about that. People have different intelligence quotients. Not everybody has an IQ of 165, right? Not everybody has emotional quotient and ability the same either. Our emotional stability is part of our heredity, is part of our environment, and it's part of our own learning as we go along in life. But the brain that God gave each and every one of us has a certain kind of plasticity, they call it in this book as it's explained. And what that means is the brain you get is trainable. The brain you get is trainable. So even if you have bad experiences, you have the option as a human being created in the image of God to have a brain that grows with you. And unlike what they used to think, your brain continues to remain trainable even as you get older. Sorry about that because at a certain age when people start saying, well, I'm just too old to be trained. (laughs) You ever said that? Well, you're not. Your brain has the ability to keep being trainable. Now, does it so are some tasks harder for your brain as you get older? Yes, but they don't go away completely oftentimes. And it still remains trainable in many other areas that are new areas for you. Now, let's just stop a moment. He's a good, good father, isn't he? I mean, to give us a brain unlike any other creature that can respond and be trainable and actually control our actions. I mean, have you ever seen a dog that's been trained to sit And have you ever seen that dog with a very proud owner? Sometimes these are males, just saying. Who wants to show off his dog's training ability. You know, and so you say sit to a dog that's trained to retrieve. And then you take the object you have and you throw it. And the dog goes. And the dog is supposed to sit there. And you say sit and you throw what he's supposed to go get. And he's like. The dog wants to do what the dog 
It's been trained to do. And if a dog could think, he's probably thinking, you're a mean, mean owner. I want to go fetch. You've taught me to go fetch, but now you're saying sit. But a dog can't really think that way. But a dog has known that when you say sit, just like when you say fetch, it's got to sit. Now, a human can take all that stuff in, work it all around inside themselves, put it in their brain, and not be subject to doing what feels right to do simply by instinct. Now, this is where it gets interesting in this idea of emotional intelligence because you see the very cornerstone of emotional intelligence according to this author and it makes a lot of sense to me as I've contemplated now for two or three weeks is the idea that self-awareness is a foundation for emotional intelligence for happy living and for Christian discipleship and he also makes a point it's a foundation for healthy pastors who actually help their congregations thrive and just before you get the big head he also says it's a foundation for congregations to behave in ways that are helpful to their world, to one another, and to the ministry they've been called to do. There's a congregational intelligence he's actually seeking to say that is present in some congregations that are not in others. It's underdeveloped. And you say, well, this sounds really complicated, and I thought we were here to learn about the Bible. Jesus is the example supremely of emotional intelligence. Having a brain, thinking about what's going on, the sensory experiences that they're having, evaluating those sensory experiences, and then making choices based on your values and opinions and not your emotions. Have you ever made opinions like this? You have a sensory experience. It evokes within you an emotion. You become aware of the emotion. And then it translates into feelings in your brain as you think about it. And then as the feelings are clear in your brain, you begin to have thoughts about how you should respond. And finally, you take action based on those thoughts in that sequence. If you do those things regularly, often, and almost all the times, you're a very emotionally intelligent person. Would you please stand up and let's give you a round of applause. If, however, you're the kind of person who has emotional experience and you get angry and you respond without really thinking it through, you've got some more development to happen. Don't stand up. Sometimes you say, well, that's all of us and we're a mixture. Yes, it's true you're a mixture. We're all a mixture. And yet there's progress to be made for all of us that keeps us on a pilgrimage, if you will, of becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more mature mature about the way we handle ourselves. We like to think that that's the way we act when we've been married a long time. Some of us could say that's the only way we're able to stay married is we become more emotionally mature. Now, Sally and I, when she was 18 and I was 21, now you can close your ears again on the right side, we got married very young at the time to be getting married. But we were so emotionally mature, <laughs> so ready for marriage that it was no problem whatsoever. We first resided after our marriage in a little mobile home on Highway 78 where everybody coming home to Farmersville per- perhaps drove by that way. It always kind of disturbed me that almost everyone was passing by that way. 
Because inside that house, occasionally they might have seen a little mobile home rocking, even though it was tied down to the earth, because inside were two strong, hard-headed, greatly controlled by emotion human beings that had not yet matured completely in their physical thinking. Of course, I was a lot farther along than Sally (laughs) at that point because I was older and wiser. You see how mature she is? She stood up and started searching for a microphone. That is self-control. Goes along with emotional intelligence, too. She's thinking about it. Yeah. See? See? So if we could follow that process all alone in our lives, then we would actually be in control of our own emotions, which if you just, just think about the logic of it, the ability to control your own emotions is so critical to everything in life. Because things are happening and things will continue to happen throughout your life that will challenge you, that will strike you emotionally. There was many years of my life, many years of being a pastor in my life, things could happen in the world and I would feel such anger. And when I felt anger, I had thoughts of this ought to happen. And it was usually very negative for the one causing the events. Very negative for the one causing the events. Did I say very negative? I'm like prison forever or shot in the head, negative. Because, you know, you just shouldn't do some things in this life. And when somebody perpetrated a crime against a child, it was simple for me. You did what to that child? (sighs) Inside, you're so angry. You're so frustrated. And if you're not careful in the midst of that anger, you want to destroy that person's life. It took me years, actually within the last 8 to 10 years, for me to finally get rid of that so that my feelings are more under control than they ever used to be. I don't want anyone to die. I certainly don't want anyone to die that does not know Jesus. So if someone is in that shape, wanting to kill them is totally inappropriate for Christian thought process. But it took me years to grow up enough emotionally that I could stand that kind of pain in my gut about something that felt so wrong. Now, I say that not to pat me on the head, but to say we all are in this process of trying to become more self-aware of our emotions. As these things happening, if we make emotional responses only, we endanger ourselves, right? But we can't even do that if we're not aware of our feelings. Now, let me talk to the men a moment. You women can take a, relax a moment. Men, clods, who we often pride ourselves on being non-feeling people. Well, I just don't feel like my wife does all the feeling for for us. Uh, You know, that is a feeling that you're giving into. The very fact that you want to not have feelings is an affront to the God who gave you feelings. Now, let me be clear before you rush off with your minds taken off in a million directions. I know this is a long sermon. I'm not going to apologize for it because I'm not through. I apologize after. 
whenever those feelings come, you're much more likely to act on feelings than you are on thoughts. Every one of us are until we reach a certain level of emotional maturity. It's the reason why my niece almost died this weekend. You say, what are you talking about? Actually, it's my niece's, my niece's daughter. Because she was in a strange house and for the first time with some new friends that she kind of knew. And because the babysitter was asleep and it was 12 in the morning, the 18-year-old got in the car and they all filled it up and they went driving. But this 18-year-old boy was the only adult in the car and he was not an adult, right? How many of you were an adult when you were an 18-year-old male? He decided it would be cool and scary to rock the car going down a rural dirt road. Four flip rollovers later, my niece, who did not have on a, a seatbelt, flew out of the car, and so did another young woman, girl, who was in the car too. Now, he wasn't trying to hurt anybody. He was having an 18-year-old brainless thought. This feels like fun. <laughs> Let's scare the little girls. She has a broken femur. She has a swollen face and a lot of cuts. She's lucky to be breathing. And so is the other girl. You see, we're often act upon our thought upon our feelings of what's fun or what feels good before we think about the consequences. And we don't stop doing that when we get to be 19 either, do we? Sometimes it happens when we're much older. Perhaps you've known some adults that are out of touch with their feelings. They don't even realize they just kicked the dog because they're mad from whatever happened at work. You've heard those story, right? Or they yell at their children when they come home from a hard day at work, not because the child has done something so terrible, but because they're still angry from work, from an experience. That's called taking action based upon feeling and not thinking through what you're doing. That's called being angry on the inside and you not knowing if you're really angry on the inside or not. I've been asked that question a lot lately, and it feels a little different. Pastor, how are you? I'm fine. Really? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm not taking any actions lately that have completely embarrassed me that I can recall without thinking about them. I'm not acted just out of my feelings, and that's when I think I do best when I'm thoughtful about what I'm doing. Have I had any urges that had to be quelled? Oh, yeah. But, you know, that's just my temperament. I'm going to have those urges. The fact that you're all alive and still here is proof of that. <laughs> and the fact that I'm still here is proof of that, too. There have been a number of times when people would like to have assisted me in meeting Jesus, I'm sure. And there have been some times in my life, quite frankly, I deserved it. But the reality is that when things happen, and if we are self-aware, we get in touch with that. I remember the short story. First board meeting in my first appointment at one of the three churches, and we had announced a change in the worship times. I was young. I was dumb. I had no training. It just made common sense to change the worship schedule so that one church could worship every Sunday because there's a lot more possibilities in that town than in this church of family members who had 19 people and they'd always have 19 people until grandma died. Just made sense. They had church every Sunday over here. They had it twice a month. 
So I just stood up and was saying, we ought to do this, change worship services to do it, because I was young, I was dumb, I was untrained. You got the picture, right? I was 27, I was still dumb. But one lady on the back row took issue with my suggestion, which hadn't really occurred to me until it happened. And as I was explaining what we were going to do on the back row, she said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to do that. Right out loud. She wasn't thinking thoughts. She was speaking right out loud. And I kind of kept talking, and uh, she kept saying louder, uh no, we're not going to do that. Mm -mm." I knew I was in trouble. You know why I knew I was in trouble? Because of what she said, right? No, because the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Thank God I was self-aware, even at that age, enough to know that I was about to get in trouble because she and I were about to have a meeting of the minds. But instead, I could found the wherewithal, only the Spirit could have done that at that point in my life, that's for sure, to say, you know, everybody has an opinion, they'll all get to say it one at a time. And I was looking right at her. She was a sweet soul. But she wasn't too happy with our plan, with my plan, I should say. And I had done a poor job of presenting it. But if I hadn't been self-aware enough to know it, I might have said something much more harsh. But I didn't. And not only that, I got to enjoy someone else's brain watching that little altercation on the front row was a man of about 85 who was about to roll all over the floor. He thought it was the funniest thing in the world for me to have to face that lady, who he had probably heard face her many times in his life because they'd been in that church forever together, and he thought it was hilarious. I found nothing humorous in that event, actually, but it all turned out well, so it's okay. She, she didn't shoot me when I was going out the back door or anything, so it worked. Now, in this example of Jesus facing this test, he makes clear to us that r- rational thought can change the way we feel, but more often, It's our emotions that are in charge instead of our rational thinking process. The brain man that you see pictured on your bulletin, that brain is shown in his stomach. (laughs) Because, you know, emotions come within us, don't they? They well up inside us, and they get expressed as feelings in our minds. What we want to do is get our brain down there in the stomach so it's not just our feelings that are ruling us, but a mixture of where the feelings are coming from with a process that is thoughtful and contemplative. Because when we do that, we are at our best. Self-awareness is critical to joyful living. It's critical in relationships and in families. Because out-of-control emotions harm us usually physiologically. There's a thing that's called stress and high blood pressure. It's usually often a result of repressed anger. It can be physical entirety. I know that, of course, but it's also affected by our lives emotionally. A lack of self-awareness is a lack of self-control. And when we're out of control, we can violate our own set of values, our own set of standards because of our emotions. We tend to turn people off when we're out of control and we're not self-aware. Now, I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm doing a quick survey of the congregation. This is always dangerous. I should never do this, but it didn't come across my thinking in preparation for the sermon. Have you ever met a person who, I'm running through my mind where this happened lately. I don't think it was here. 
If I'm talking about you, it's not intentional. Sort of. Have you ever met a person that when you started talking to them, they never quit talking? And the whole conversation was you listening to them talking? And they really didn't even know it. They didn't even know it. There are people in this world like that. I've known some in other places. Who, who I don't know how their husband had the gift of voice left. These happened to be two females in my mind. And, you know, because for every ten words the man spoke, who might have turned off the feelings he had, there were a lot spoken by the female. That can be the other way around. I realize that. It can be either way. I'm not just talking about a female thing here. But when somebody talks all the time and doesn't listen, it turns off the person they're trying to communicate with. And it's not just in talking that matters. It's other emotions. People who are not in control of their emotions and they're unaware of it can hurt people a lot. Now, fathers, I'm going to end up on you. Daddies. How you express your feelings or don't to your daughters is the greatest determining factor in their young sexual lives. Period. If you tell me you don't want to be a person who's, who expresses your feelings, then I'm going to tell you that your daughters are going to struggle. The first person God intends your daughters to fall in love with is their daddies. And if you're uncomfortable expressing your affection for your daughters, you are affecting their life, and it's not in a good way. It may be because you're macho. It may be because you just don't have feeling words, you think. Well, then you need to find them. Because they are counting on you to model to them a healthy relationship between you and them. That part is not up for discussion. You, you can disagree with anything else I said this morning, but you could also disagree with Mr. Oswald. But I'm just telling you, I've watched this too often. I can almost pick out young women in youth groups, if I'm around them very much, who do not have a good relationship with their father. If that doesn't scare the pants off of you, then you're not listening. You're not being very self-aware. Work on it. So I'm, at, I'm ending with this. Because, you know, even a man like Socrates had a famous saying. It was simply this, know thyself. He also said, an unexamined life is not worth living. That's true for males and females. If your brain can't change, so if you're thinking right now, I'm not very emotionally intelligent, well, do not despair because there are things like meditation, small group work, journaling. They help you focus on feelings and feeling words. You can get beyond where you are and be a different person. All you have to do is work at it because your brain can do it. It can get you where you need to go. You know what the opposite of, of um, self-awareness is in the Scriptures? He brought this point up in his book. The opposite of self-awareness is hypocrisy. Do you know who Jesus had the most harsh words for? Take the speck out of your own eye before you try to get the log out of someone else's.
hypocrisy. You know why the world is turning away from the church today? And one of the reasons is because they think that the church is hypocritical. They see the sin in other people's eyes without seeing their own sin. They are not self-aware of their own failings. Know thyself is a gift we can give to the world. Next week we'll be speaking about empathy and how that is part of being emotionally intelligent. I realize that I've dumped a lot of, a lot of stuff on you. And trust me, that's as simple as I could dog it down this morning. But I hope if it does nothing else, it does this for you. It helps you to remember that your emotions that become feelings in your head need to be connected with a thoughtful process before you act on them. Because that is what emotionally healthy people do. And that is what spiritually driven Christians do as well. So I hope you will join me in prayer that we each can take a step farther down that road of being emotionally intelligent people that the world might be safe for Christ.